0: choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things not because they are easy but because they are hard got speed, john glenn roger zero g and i feel fine okay, my out. okay i'm out how does it feel for the united states to be the new record holder at last huh when that baby light Hello and welcome, this is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 298 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 14, Crew Selection. There were some people who wondered why America's first man in space, Alan Shepard, at age 47, having acquired fame, wealth, and status as an American hero, would risk his life to go to the moon. After all, Shepard had been one of the original seven Mercury astronauts that had been announced with great fanfare to the public in April of 1959. A native of New Hampshire and a crack Navy aviator, he had made his 15-minute suborbital flight aboard Freedom 7 in May of 1961. The passage of 10 years had deepened the lines around his mouth and his blue, slightly bugged eyes, But the toothy grin was the same as it had been on the cover of Life magazine in 1961. And though the military crew cut was gone, his hair now fell partway across his forehead. His reasons for wanting to fly in space had not changed. In Shepard's mind, to say that he was brave, to call him a hero, was hopelessly incomplete. He was a supreme test pilot and nothing mattered more to him than getting a chance to prove it. For those who worked with him, Alan Shepard's personality could be described as mercurial. Even while the Mercury astronauts were in training, Shepard acquired the reputation of being able to ooze charm, spit out cockiness, or abruptly summon up frosty hostility at will. Such personality traits might at times be expected in a career field as dangerous as test piloting. But Shepard's countenance could unexpectedly and instantly shift 180 degrees and contradictory terms such as smiling owl or the icy commander are part of the Shepard legend. Shepard was grounded in 1964 due to an inner ear problem and was appointed Chief of the Astronaut Office in Houston, as Deke Slayton moved up to Director of Flight Crew Operations. While it was gratifying for Shepard to be able to remain with NASA, the probability that he would never journey into space again seemed to sharpen the edges of his unpredictability. According to legend, every business day, Shepard's secretary in the Astronaut Office would place one of two portraits of her boss on display, one in which Shepard was smiling, the other in which he was scowling, to alert visitors to the office as to what kind of mood Shepard was in. In the summer of 1968, Stuart Russa, unlike Shepard, didn't have the luxury of worrying whether he would ever make a second space flight. He was still waiting for his first and things didn't look good. Like his colleagues in Group 5, also known as the Original 19 Astronauts, he was immersed in Rookie's labors for the better part of two years. A thin, redhead Oklahoma native, Rusa was 35, but he seemed not to have aged a day since he was a smoke jumper for the U.S. Forest Service in Oregon 15 years earlier. Rusa had no illusion that he would be going to the moon. Instead, he believed he was just one more in a sea of faces at the Monday morning pilots meeting. He and his friend Charlie Duke were assigned to cover the Saturn boosters, and to them it felt like a backwater. While Rusa and Duke were assigned to boosters at Huntsville, Edgar Mitchell, another Group 5 astronaut, was assigned to the development of the lunar module. Mitchell would ultimately furnish important contributions and input, working long hours at the Grumman facility on Long Island. As the time for the first Apollo missions neared, the chief of the astronaut office, Alan Shepard, began to show more interest in Rusa's work. And then, one day in the fall of 1968, Rusa was at North American where Al Shepard called him to say, we want you to be on the support crew for Apollo 9. Then he added, just be patient. I've got something in the works. Shepard's tone was so matter of fact that the comment barely registered. Rusa was just glad that he was finally moving out of the pack. Rusa's assignment was to help coordinate the activities in mission control, and he logged months of simulations with the flight controllers. When Apollo 9 flew, Rusa was more involved than anyone expected. After Rusty Swigert suffered motion sickness, Rusa was part of the scramble to reorganize the schedule and save as many of the mission's objectives as possible. He knew more about the flight plan than any astronaut who was still on Earth, and he was at the CAPCOM's mic almost every minute that McDivitt's crew was awake. When the other controllers left at the end of their eight-hour shifts, Rusa just stayed where he was. And after it was all over, Deke Slayton told him, You were more on top of it than the flight directors were. Just as importantly, Chris Kraft took notice. And Rusa had always felt Kraft had a great deal of influence on an astronaut's career. Interestingly, Stuart Rusa figures into the legend of Shepard's unpredictable moods. Reportedly, on more than one occasion prior to the Apollo 14 assignment, Rusa spotted Shepard walking down the hall in his direction, and the chief of the astronaut office had a dark expression on his face. So Rusa quickly ducked into a nearby office. The point needs to be made that Rusa probably wouldn't have taken evasive action due to any intimidation or outright fear of Shepard, but considering the competition at the time to get a flight he was most likely seeking to avoid any type of encounter that might have been construed by Shepard in a negative manner, or perhaps Rusa just didn't need the aggravation. A variant of this antidote was seen in the 1998 television miniseries From the Earth to the Moon, in which Rusa, portrayed by George Newbern, approaches Shepard's office but spots the scowling portrait of his boss in a frame on the wall just outside and quickly turns away, muttering, You know what? I can come back. Shepard's secretary then abruptly inquires, Stu, are you flying to the Cape Friday? Yeah, why? Rusa responds. A quick shift to the next scene shows Rusa in a blue NASA flight suit waiting on the tarmac at Houston's Ellington Air Force Base, beside one of NASA's T-38 jet trainers. Shepard, portrayed by Ted Levine, arrives scowling in real life and without uttering a word, climbs aboard the airplane as Rusa's passenger. One could surmise that such a scene was exemplary of how Shepard was able to take note of Rusa's stick and rudder capabilities for future reference. Then, Shepard, who had been grounded due to Manier's Syndrome, had secret surgery on his inner ear and was able to convince the NASA doctors that it had worked. By the spring of 1969, Shepard was back on flight status and ready to take any mission he could get. At a small press conference after the news had broke, a reporter asked Shepard who would take his place helping Slayton with the crew assignments, and Shepard said he guessed Deke would have to do it all. Then someone asked, Will you campaign for a particular mission? Shepard replies, You're not supposed to. But then he didn't have to. His last act as Slayton's co-author on crew selections was something no other astronaut could have pulled off. He recommended himself for the very next flight available in the spring of 1969. That flight was Apollo 13, and Slayton obliged him. But Shepard had missed out on all of the two-men Gemini flights, which meant that controversy would ensue. Shepard had not done any backup work with previous Apollo crews, and neither had Stuart Rusa, who was to be named as the mission's command module pilot. Ed Mitchell had been on the support crew for Apollo 9 and was the backup lunar module pilot for Apollo 10, and had now rotated, as was the tradition, into eligibility for a prime crew three flights later. Slayton and Shepard had a lot in common, of course, and made a lot of decisions together, particularly about who got a seat on a flight. Shepard may have been a hero from the early days of Mercury, but Slayton's decision to comply with Shepard's unprecedented request or demand obviously had its detractors among the astronaut corps and elsewhere within NASA. Walt Cunningham said it was rank has its privilege and it bred a lot of resentment at the time. But Gene Cernan said he didn't have a problem with it, but a lot of people thought that flight was going to be Gordon Cooper's flight. Slayton's official choice of Shepard as Apollo 13 commander may have been made a bit easier because of the behavior of Cooper, who was the backup commander for Apollo 10 and the only other Mercury 7 member remaining in the Apollo program. Cooper had reportedly agitated NASA higher-ups by taking a laid-back attitude regarding training during the Gemini program, and he had also gone against guidelines for astronauts to stay away from dangerous extracurricular activities, signing up to drive in a race at the nearby Daytona Speedway. When Slayton forced Cooper to withdraw from the race, Cooper grumbled out loud about the incident. Accordingly, Cooper didn't rotate from his assignment as the Apollo 10 backup commander into the prime crew commander's slot on Apollo 13. What's also intriguing about the selection of the original Apollo 13 crew is the fact that because of his lofty position with the astronaut office, Shepard, as the prime crew commander, had unprecedented input concerning who he wanted on his team. According to Al Warden, Deke assigned everybody, but a lot of times those assignments, even if you had started out as a support crew member, meant that you got assigned to a crew with the consensus of the commander of the flight. Behind closed doors, more than one of the pilots expressed resentment that Shepard could walk right onto a prime crew without doing his turn as backup. In reality, Shepard's ego ruled that out, nor was there any danger he might have to accept middle or right seat. Others realized that it was pointless to say that Al Shepard was cutting in line. He had been in line from the day he arrived, and as far as Deke Slayton was concerned, if Shepard wasn't qualified, no one was. Ed Mitchell's memory about being informed that he and Rusa were in the line for lunar module pilot and command module pilot positions on the Apollo 13 Prime crew is a bit nebulous, as he recalls it being announced to astronauts and other NASA staff members in a standard manner, perhaps at a general astronaut meeting within the halls of the Man Space Center. The popular anecdote, however, is that Shepard had called the two Group 5 astronauts to his office and informed them that if they didn't mind flying with an old retread, the three of them were going to be the prime crew for Apollo 13. Rusa, having never been on a backup crew, reportedly asked for clarification, wanting to know if the chief of the astronaut office had indeed said prime, which Shepard curtly confirmed. Another variation to this episode had Rusa asking Shepard something like, what about backup, or some similar inquiry that indicated Rusa couldn't fathom not having to go through backup rotation first, to which Shepard snapped, I don't fly back up to anybody. There are two primary schools of thought about the who and why regarding Shepard's selection of Mitchell and Russa. The first is that he wanted the best people he could get for the mission. Mitchell had indeed rotated into prime crew eligibility, but was also brilliant regarding navigation and rendezvous techniques. Edgar Mitchell would later recall that Shepard reportedly told more than one confidant that he chose Mitchell because he wanted to come home. Rusa was good at analyzing flight anomalies and taking appropriate action. Shepard also liked Stu's attitude about what the Apollo program was doing as well as his other flying skills and patriotism. Mitchell and Rusa were most likely considered by Shepard and others to be the top unassigned lunar module and command module experts. There's no question that Stu was pretty good when it came to stick and rudder, Mitchell recalled. He was certainly one of the best of the astronaut group five. The hip side explanation for Shepard's choices is that by choosing two rookies, America's first spaceman would have more of the spotlight on himself and Al Shepard could still come on like the self-assured, cocky fighter pilot and hero if that is what he needed to do. Mitchell recounted that members of the press would often refer to the crew as Alan Shepard and those other two guys. Like Shepard, Mitchell was Navy. Shepard's choice of RUSA, an Air Force captain, may have also surprised some people who might have expected another all-Navy crew, like Apollo 12. Nevertheless, Shepard's own experience in space had only consisted of a 15-minute suborbital flight, so it wasn't surprising that some referred to the crew as the three rookies. The would-be Apollo 13 crew began training in secret before the official announcement of its lineup. NASA didn't want any announcement that Alan Shepard was returning to space to dilute any publicity from the upcoming Apollo 11 flight. Such secrecy was actually standard, as it would usually be around two months between the time a crew selection was made, during which time training would commence, and the date that a public announcement was made. As it turned out, however, the crew of Apollo 13 would ultimately become the crew of Apollo 14. Deke Slayton submitted his office's selection of Shepard, Mitchell, and Rusa for Apollo 13 to NASA headquarters, and was turned down. George Miller, NASA's head of manned spaceflight, let it be known that since Shepard had been out of action for so long, America's first spaceman needed a more extensive training period. But it was also said that Miller took exception to the perceived buddy system between Slayton and Shepard, which had placed Shepard on Apollo 13 without a turn in the backup rotation. Some longtime members of the astronaut corps, including individuals directly involved with Apollo 13 and 14, supported Miller's move. Accordingly, the crews of Apollo 13 and Apollo 14 were reversed, and the new Apollo 13 crew consisted of Jim Lovell, Fred Hayes, and Ken Mattingly. Jim Lovell said of the decision to swap crews, We thought Al would not have enough training time for the mission. NASA management thought so too, and that is why they slipped him to Apollo 14. As for a prime crew made up of three astronauts with a grand total of 15 minutes in space between them, Lovell was more conciliatory about Shepard's return. He said with enough training time, no one was worried. After all, Neil Armstrong had only minimal space time in Gemini 8 when he landed on the moon. The crew now designated for Apollo 14 instead of 13 had a differing point of view about being bumped backwards by one mission. Ed Mitchell said, of course we didn't like it initially and we had Deke, Slayton and Chris Kraft on our side but their boss said no so that's the way it was. Stu told his wife Joan about his selection and Joan informed their children but admonished them to keep it secret until the public announcement. The youngsters did exactly as they were told, but several weeks later, a classmate to Rusa's son walked up to him at school and said, Hey, Walter Cronkite says your dad's going to the moon. Rusa's son recalled, I had to tell my mother the secret was out. Walter Cronkite broke the story. I was afraid she would think I leaked it but she told me not to worry because she already knew the word was out. So, the crew for Apollo 14 was officially announced to the public on August 6, 1969. Alan Shepard was the commander, Stuart Russo the command module pilot, and Edgar Mitchell the lunar module pilot. The backup crew for the Apollo 14 mission was made up of Gene Cernan as commander, Ron Evans as command module pilot, and Joe Engel as lunar module pilot. As for Russo's perspective on having to remain in lunar orbit as a command module pilot instead of walking on the moon as a lunar module pilot, Charlie Dukes said the subject never came up between them before Apollo 14 flew. And he further said, Stu never intimated to me in any way that he didn't want the command module pilot job or that he had wanted to be a lunar module pilot. He was really focused and was pleased that he was flying. He took his role as command module pilot very, very seriously. As for the dearth of spaceflight time for Shepard, Mitchell, and Rusa, Duke said, I didn't think anything about Shepard having one 15-minute flight and two rookies being on the original Apollo 13. When you think about it, all the flights after the actual Apollo 13 flight had two rookies. Shepard was extremely sharp and he picked two guys he thought he could work with and that he thought were the best in their respective jobs, command module pilot and lunar module pilot. And they worked very well together. Allen was not an autocrat. The crew was able to express themselves. And those were the twists and turns of how Apollo 14 got its crew. And what a fortunate crew they were. If George Miller had not rejected Slayton's initial crew assignment, this crew would have flown on Apollo 13. from the Cave State. That's Missouri. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 298 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 14, Crew Selection. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 126 are available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive It should be available on all podcatchers. I want to credit my sources for this episode. The Johnson Space Center, Smoke Jumper Moon Pilot by Willie Mosley, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, Flight by Chris Kraft, and Wikipedia. Well, as many of you know, we are counting down to the completion of 300 episodes. We are now at T-minus two. Now, this is a really huge deal for the podcast because I did not expect to get anywhere near 300 episodes. Of course, we will have a celebration on that 300th episode, the Tang Ceremony, and last week I mentioned that we would have a drawing for the latest Space Rocket History swag. To enter, email me, mike, at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your favorite episode of the podcast. Now I'm not talking about a series of episodes, I'm talking about a particular episode that you liked best, and also tell me why you liked the episode. We will draw five entries from those who participate, and they will win a new prize no one has ever seen before. It is the custom 3-inch by 3-inch static cling of the Space Rocket History Podcast logo. It sticks to surfaces such as glass. The deadline for entries will be before I record episode 300, so you have a little time. So just send me an email of your favorite episode and why you liked it. Hopefully, we will read some of these emails during the 300th episode. So far, I've received four emails, so the odds are looking pretty good now. So go ahead and send it in. It'll be fun. Trust me. Okay, some afterthoughts on the episode. What did you think about Shepard cutting in line to get himself a moon mission, and using his position of authority. I can understand how the other astronauts must have felt, but honestly, I think Shepard deserved his chance, and a Mercury 7 astronaut should get to walk on the moon. He had been an astronaut longer than anyone, and he had stuck it out when he had that inner ear problem. So I think he deserved the flight. And that inner ear problem, I need to say something about it too, That very well may have saved his life because if he were not removed from the flight assignments, there's a good chance he would have been in Apollo 1, and we know what happened there. Shepard had surgery to correct the inner ear problem, and he convinced the doctors he was cured. There is some anecdotal evidence that the surgery didn't really fix the problem. Instead, Shepard learned to compensate. But I have no evidence to prove that, so the stories could be very well be wrong, so just bear that in mind. Okay, the pictures for this episode are available on the website, spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check them out. For those of you who are enjoying the podcast, you may have noticed that we don't have any commercials or ad revenue. We are entirely listener-supported, so please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. To support the podcast, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange donate button to make a one-time donation, or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donor's page at the level they choose to donate, as well as they enter into the drawing for the weekly prize. April is generally the hardest month for the podcast, so... We received two donations to support the podcast over the past week. Two new ones, I mean. Dan W. donated at the Apollo level, and Poole pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. We are still at 218 Patreons because we lost a couple, with a goal of reaching 300 for 2019. Our total donors in 2019 have reached 309, with a goal of reaching 600 in 2019. For the 309 of you who have already donated for 2019, I certainly appreciate it. This week we are giving out the SRH logo magnet to one of our lucky donors. Mrs. SRH randomly selected Michael Sykes. Michael Sykes, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com and tell me your address, I will get this mailed out to you. Okay, folks, that's all we have for this week. I will try to have episode 299 posted by next Thursday. T-2 until completion of episode 300. So long for now.